We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. As usual, stay tuned to the end of the interview. We'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes. All of the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for the retweets. Thanks for the ratings and reviews. Just thanks for everything. Now, on to my guest for today. Angel investor and business consultant, Marjorie Radlow-Zandi. Marjorie shares that entrepreneurship is in her blood with great-grandparents who ran brokerages in Russia and Manhattan. Her first project was establishing a sailing program at 19 in her hometown of Burlington, Vermont. She saw a white space where there was a need and she had an idea to fill it. This is the foundation of her attitude towards building businesses, which she's made her life's work. Marjorie earned an MBA from Northeastern University, then moved to Silicon Valley, where she helped businesses grow globally. She then took on the challenge of helping a food diagnostic company to grow and scale and move back to the Boston area. She's taken what she's learned from these experiences to become an investor, consultant, and mentor. She's part of both the Launchpad Investor Group and the Branch Investor Group, which focuses on investing in food companies. Marjorie sees a lot of growth in food and food safety, especially anything that helps us live healthier lives, which she calls better for you, as well as an online learning and health diagnostic testing at home for both people and pets. Marjorie believes that successful entrepreneurs need to have a lot of grit and passion as success rarely happens overnight, and a high tolerance for ambiguity, so you're ready for anything that gets thrown your way. Now, let's get better together. Marjorie Radlo-Zandi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you. You are an investor, among other things, which everyone that talks to me about what kind of guests do you want on the podcast? They're like, investors, we need to know how to get money. (laughs) (laughs) You know, as you know, that's part of the game is being an entrepreneur. And uh, you're, I mean, just looking through all the stuff you've done is just really one, really impressive Two, you do a lot of investments, a lot of mentoring, a lot of diverse, diverse investments as well. And a lot of, stuff in biotech and just so many cool things that which I can't wait to dig into. But uh, before we get started on all that, why don't you tell us how you got to do what you're doing today? Okay, great. Happy to. Um, entrepreneurship's in my blood. I guess it starts from the beginning. I came from a family of entrepreneurs, um, starting with my great grandmothers who were entrepreneurs and great-grandparents. One had a brokerage business in St. Petersburg, Russia. 
Um, my great grandmother had a brokerage business on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and she didn't speak a word of English, but kept it going. Um, and then it transferred to me. I, when I was eight, just 19, I established the first sailing program in my college town in Burlington, Vermont, where none previously existed. Um, and then after graduating from my MBA, um, which I had from Northeastern, I went off to Silicon Valley. Um, and my, my um, job was expanding uh, markets globally from a number of software companies in Silicon Valley. And then what happened um, a few years in, a tiny company from Boston wanted me to be on their board because they wanted someone that knew how to scale internationally. In their case, it wasn't a software business. It was a food diagnostic business. Um, they reached out to me, gave me an equity stake. I took a big cut in pay, but the equity stake made up for it. And my job was to grow the business um, from doing business in one country to over 100 countries. Um, the name of the business was Vicam, and it was funded by angel investors. Um, and so um, I ended up growing the business. Um, and actually, one of the collaborations that I had while growing the business ended up purchasing the business. With that said, um, what we did is we had an actual investment banking process, which yielded many, many offers on the business. Um, that, um, and we ended up taking the second highest offer, not the first highest offer, just because it was a better fit for all stakeholders and there. And we also were sure that all the escrow, which was taken out, would be paid in dealing with the, the player that we um, dealt with. And I ended up running that business for um, a number of years. And I really kind of, um, after a number of years, I got a little restless and really missed the creative, fast-moving, um, private entrepreneurial environment um, versus the more um, staid public company with a lot of um, reporting requirements. And actually, I stayed on a little even longer because I just love the company's mission, which is to create a, a safer food supply with a food diagnostic uh, product. Um, but I ended up joining um, through a colleague, a, an investment group called Launchpad Venture Group, and they are the third largest uh, angel investment group in the U.S. and the largest um, in the Northeast. And what was terrific about that group is invested in all types of interesting areas of tech, diagnostics, life science, ed tech, clean tech. But there were um, 170 members of the group in all different areas. And there was a whole education um, program because I had to shift my focus from running a business to evaluating the business, um, which I'm doing now. And so now I'm a member of um, Launchpad Venture Group um, and also Branch Venture Group, which focuses on food and food tech. I also do um, mentoring for a number of groups, Northeastern University, Harvard, um, Penn, MIT, um, and also One Valley in Silicon Valley and um, Manatee Ma mentors out of Basel, Switzerland. Um, and then I'm on the board of a few companies too. So total underachiever, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do, do you still, do you still sail? Yes, I do. Whenever I have the opportunity, I do. I just, I love sailing. Because uh, I've been to Burlington, Vermont. Um, IBM had a fab there. And back in my previous life, I was a semiconductor engineer. And one of our fabs was IBM. And I remember going to IBM during like this kind of like was during the summer in Burlington, which is beautiful, but gosh, such a beautiful place. And one of the uh, the guys that was our contact there was like, well, uh, we're going to go to the uh, Lake Champlain conference room. And I'm all, uh, what, where's that? And he's like, I'll show you. <laughs> Get in his car. We drive to his sailboat <laughs> and we sail around Lake Champlain, which was just the most beautiful, peaceful thing in the world. I can, I can see, I, I now, I knew at that point, I knew why people yeah. loved sailing, <laughs> but I'm like, Leading up to that was a lot harder. Like he did a lot of work. So 
Absolutely. Oh yeah, absolutely. And yeah, to, to get that thing. And that was really what I started was the precursor to the bigger sailing program there, which actually I think Bernie Sanders um, got the money to put together. And it's, it's, it's very impressive. But Lake Champlain is fabulous in terms of the, it's absolutely beautiful and the wind is perfect for sailing and learning to sail. Yeah, because I've sailed in San Francisco Bay, <laughs> not the same. <laughs> it's cold, like, you know, like during the summer, it's miserable here but there was just I, I so peaceful i can i can see the allure i really can yeah. but it, it wasn't for me so anything like from from that first experience when you were 19 like starting this program that you've sort of carried on throughout your whole career because i mean building an entire program i mean because burlington's a big sailing town i would assume that someone had already done this but it sounds like you did something pretty pretty amazing yeah, no, no one did it before. And I love sailing. And I said, why isn't there a sailing program here? So um, I did that. But I think what stood out to me is if you see white space, which I didn't realize that's what it was called at 19 at the time in a market, something that doesn't exist, but really should exist. And you can offer a compelling product or service um, go for it. Also, I think the importance of hiring the right staff, the amount of preparation in terms of hiring the staff, and it may seem like overkill sometime with reference checks, but it's really worth its weight um, in gold. Um, and then um, I guess the other thing is that it, it's important. You can, it's always better to under promise a little bit, but over deliver. That will always um, put you in a good stead and people won't be disappointed. They'll be excited and go with the momentum. Yeah, that's, that's definitely, um, I've, I've heard a bunch of that, like, you know, under promise, over deliver and, 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 and kind of, I wouldn't say it's like sandbagging a lot of people, of course, like, well, you're just, you know, kind of sandbagging your numbers or your experience. But really, I think it's that setting the expectation of how well the experience is going to be so that people come back. And I mean, I don't know if, if you've kind of pulled this through to some of the other companies that you've looked at or how they, you know, how, when you invest, but it seems like an interesting way to go because I wouldn't say you hold something back, but I don't know about you, but when I, I know when I interact with a company or like have a product or service that I buy and I find like a surprise in it, it's, it's almost like, you know, when you were a kid and you had a box of Captain Crunch and then you're like, oh, cool, a prize. Oh, another prize. I got a double <laughs> prize, you know? Do you think it's something like that? Because people tend to really resonate with that. They do. And they're, and the investors are excited by that. And um, I think what you've got to look at, it's just not your first round of investment. Usually companies are going to need several rounds. And if you're able to meet or hopefully exceed your commitments, those next round of funding is going to be considerably easier and, and there's also going to be, and, and you can really justify a, um, a higher valuation as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So when you're looking at investments, I mean, I've, I looked a little bit at your investment portfolio and I mean, it, it's pretty diverse, but I know you mentioned that you're really into kind of food safety, um, which is of course an important thing as we all know. Um, what What's some of the criteria that you look for in, in an investment and you know, how, and when, then what are some of the red flags that you also look for? What's key in an investment, first of all, there needs to be just like with my sailing program, um, but it just wasn't as high as a market. We didn't need that amount of investment. Um, you need to have a compelling vision. Hopefully there's some white space, or if there isn't a white space in there, you have just a much better, a hugely game-changing solution. And in terms of angel investment, um, we look at markets that are at least $100 million or more. So that's really key. We also look for the team. It's usually a combination of someone with a lot of business know-how and also someone with technical wizardry. Sometimes you have that in the same person, but often it's um, in two different people. Um, 
I also look in terms of projections, typically five years out and knowing the numbers, knowing your market, um, putting it together. Not, um, I think what you kind of have to achieve a kind of a happy medium. You don't want to be too conservative. But you also don't be want to be completely unrealistic in the market. Put a mid-level um, projection out for five years. It doesn't have to have all the details immediately about every single expense and an itemized um, Excel spreadsheet. But you need to put together your basically what your revenues are going to be, what the profit margin is going to be at the end, as well as the gross margin. Um, and so one can see how the the actual investment is going to track um, going forward. Because otherwise, how can you do an evaluation based on that? And in the life science sector, the other important piece is how long will it be before FDA approval? Oh, and this yeah. is also true in med device as well, yeah, because yeah, it's like how much money is, is an investor going to need to put in um, for this to be achieved? Yeah, no, I've, I've been at a couple of biotech companies and that whole FDA clearance, whew, what a, what a nightmare. I mean, that's yeah. huge, huge risk on, you know, obviously it doesn't work, which is the first risk, but then the second risk is, you know, will the FDA approve it or clear it for its efficacy? And can you prove that? I mean, the, the, the bar is pretty high. I mean, a lot of people think, oh, you know, they're just a bunch of lackeys from industry, but I mean, the process in order to build like a medical device as an example, which, you know, obviously more than I do, but I remember when we were doing this for ion torrent, which, uh, was a DNA sequencing company. We were doing a 510k filing on our on a uh, DNA sequencing. I guess they called it an assay to detect breast cancer. And so we had to like take our thing for research and then move it over to this 510k thing. And boy, <laughs> the level of scrutiny went up by orders of magnitude. I mean, it wasn't even. I just remember being on this team going, "I don't know how to do this. <laughs> this is insane." Um, so it does, it does work, but yeah, there's a huge risk there. And, and I guess, is there ways that companies can mitigate that risk? Cause the reason I ask is that I know a lot of companies in the digital health space that sort of go the consumer route to sort of get a bunch of um, data and then go over back over to like the studies or the, 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 the FDA clearance or whatever. Have you, have you seen that, how that works or, or the, what you invest in always have to go the FDA route? Um, I'd, I've seen both. Um, but I think there, if you're going to go the consumer route, there needs to be it. Um, and, and we have to obviously make sure that it isn't regulated and injured under that category at all. You're talking about kind of the, the dig I understand what you're saying in terms of the digital health space, and there's a lot of activity in that sector, but there needs to be a number of replicates that are done to see, compare um, the efficacy with that, with something um, more traditional. And it's just, we're not talking about doing 10 replicates. We're looking at like a uh, hundred at the very least, 250, 500, a thousand, even better, but there, and also a peer reviewed study. So I think, yeah, that's, it's, it's really important because at the end of the day, a lot of these, this digital technology is evaluating health. And from an ethics point of view, and also an investment point of view, but really ethics really should be the top of the list here. You, you want to make sure it's right. Oh, totally, totally. Yeah, I mean the yeah. the yeah. the I mean the, the best example I have of this is are some of these meditation apps, which are kind of borderline digital health, but of course the meditation's got a huge benefit to people and mindfulness, and they've you know seen lots of good, good results on it, but I've seen a lot of meditation apps like go out into the public and say, meditation's good, <laughs> get a bunch of users and then sort of backfill the clinical trial, so to speak, or the efficacy of mindfulness right. for certain things. Yeah. Not so much with drugs or medical devices. Uh, right. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It'd be a little bit right. weird to be like, yeah, well, we're going to put your pacemaker in and oh, yeah. it's just a DIY pacemaker. You go ahead and 
that's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Think, yeah. No. I do you think that digital health technology in the sector is going to continue to kind of grow and expand? It, it it seems like, especially with telemedicine. I don't know if you have any telemedicine investments, but boy, I haven't invested in that. But I think the sector is going to grow, and I also think what's going to happen is the amount of testing at home. Whether which is this is yes. going, I think COVID has really pushed this. Yeah, um, and you know testing at home, maybe sending to a laboratory. And even as it relates to pets, actually, my, one of the companies that I'm on a board on, QSM Diagnostics, mm-hmm. has developed a, um, an at-home test um, that one can perform at home and, and send it in just like um, is happening in the human environment. I think, and also this test could be done at the groomers as well as a quick test at a vet site versus at, at a very low cost, as opposed to going to the vet office, having that vet office, sending a sample to a laboratory in Maine and having the result and having, and that's much more, it's an expensive vet visit. It's also expensive to actually have the test sent as well. Um, Wouldn't it be great if you could just check, let's say the the first um, test of this company is for pseudomonas, which is dogs who swim a lot, often get ear infections to test yourself or have your groomers test to see if your dog has pseudomonas. And rather, let's say you you do the test and you find out uh, that he or she has pseudomonas, immediately just picking up um, the, the actual prescription at the vet office but having this done a lot faster and also in a much more economic way. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's also going to be for human health too. I mean, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I I don't see why you couldn't. I mean, there's lots and lots of these kind of what I call consumer medical devices. I don't know if that's a term or not, but you know, things that you can do at home, like, there's the oxygen meters, there's, you know, the Fitbits, right. you know, Apple watch stuff. There's uh, even, you know, the, the, the traditional one is the glucose meter, which you see that you see now the continuous glucose meters, you see um, at home tests for DNA, for your diet and for all sorts of things. And you mentioned COVID. I think it's just going to explode. There's no reason it why it can't, explode. right? There's no reason why it can't. Yeah. Right. No, it absolutely does. I think the difference is going to be, you're going to be able I think uh, the threshold is the amount of tests that you're going to be able to do at home. And it's it's really important that those tests are validated to have the accuracy of, of tests that are done in the laboratory. I think that's really key for it. But I do think it, it's going to happen. And I just think that um, going forward, um, even when we're not in a pandemic environment, um, he, you know, you don't need to be in person for every single doctor's appointment. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a company that um, actually a, a diagnostic company for skin rashes um, in the dermatology space. That's a fabulous example where you could um, upload a, a photo or there'd be a camera that could see something and you could just immediately have a, um, a televisit to determine if it's, it's a problematic growth or problematic skin condition and be diagnosed right away. I think, and um, even further up that stream is to have actually the device that you could do yourself and be able to identify what it is. And then obviously you'd, um, in this country, you'd connect with the dermatologist to actually get the prescription or over-the-counter medication in other countries, such as France, um, you could go right to the the pharmacist and, and get that medication. Yeah, yeah. I th- there's, I think, the name of, I think it's called Dermascope. I don't remember the name of it. I yeah. actually interviewed their CEO, and yeah, they had a. It was a device. Um, was originally, I think, they're doing it for clinicians, um, but it's for skin cancers and, and to like actually look at them without doing a biopsy. You know, like you could apparently get rid of a lot of biopsies or at least confirm that you need a biopsy as opposed to, Oh, we looks funny. Let's do it. Um, but their eventual vision was that, yeah, you could do this at home. If you were, let's say you had a 
you know, you had a genetic disposition to skin cancer and you, or you already had skin cancer and they were monitoring stuff. So yeah, the technology is pretty powerful. I mean, you know, like our phones and our computers and we're used to, you know, IOT devices, we're used to smart home devices. It's only going to be a matter of time where we'll have these additional biometric telemetry, you know, healthcare devices that are going to help us you know, be, one, be more efficient, but also like my dad, he, he's got dementia and Alzheimer's and, you know, he's got to go to the doctor a lot, but they also bring the, do, you know, the, the nurse will come out or the uh, physical therapist will come out and do all the things there, which is way more convenient for everyone. And, you know, you're not at a hospital with a bunch of sick people, right? That's where the my, sick people are, right? Um, that's right. And especially during COVID, which we're still, we're still in, it's just kids just can see this more and more. I mean, I think it'll be a big benefit to everyone. And hopefully this will allow us to, to rein in all the out of control medical bills and medical costs. Cause boy, there's just so much of that going, going around. Oh, absolutely. And it's also going to, uh, it, free up the queue to, when you really do need to see a doctor in true. person. That's very true. Right? How yeah. many times have you tried to say it? Well, I, I, you, we can see you in a month and <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> might be dead by then. <laughs> exactly. I mean, a month, yeah. I'm just going to skip that. Month, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So other than biotech, what, what are some of the other sectors that you're looking at? Or if you're not looking at it, what do you think is going to be kind of the next thing in the next three to five years? What, what are some of the sectors you're looking at? I think in the food sector, it's the whole better for you food. It's the, um, and that's what I've invested in. I've invested and I see, and this is in terms of branch venture group. That's what branch venture group invests in. It's in in the better for you food category. Um, And one company, which is, which, you know, I didn't, I actually found this company, um, and I just wasn't so sure um, if it really made sense or not um, until I tried it. It was absolutely fabulous. Healthy Bird. It's called UFO Milk. Mm. And it's uh, a company which uses hemp seeds mm. um, for and, and has all different types of milk. It's scaling great. It started in Los Angeles, California. It's moving out to the East Coast. That's one that I've invested in and as well as Brands Venture Group invested in that too. Um, the other is also in the better for you um, category and beverage is it's a drink from the Andes, the healing water from the Andes. The name of it is Waku. And it's actually a, uh, a, a, a beverage based on all different types of herbs that are found in the Andes mountain that particularly help gut health. Okay. So it's like a better tasting kombucha in a bunch of different flavors. Um, so that and what, what the benefit of that is not only your gut health, um, and the fact that it's a delicious drink, you also are helping the farmers in the Andes market um, have a sustainable wage. So you really, it's it's beneficial in, in, in lots of ways. Um, the other is in the called, I'm focusing a lot on beverage. It's called, it used to be called Farmer Willie's and they changed its name to Willie's Superbrew. You probably have seen it in some um, supermarkets or liquor stores. Um, and that is a fabulous, better for you um, beverage. It's, it's a, a spiked uh, seltzer, but with no artificial ingredients. So that's where I, I do think that that's what um, Branch invests in. And I think there's just going to be more and more of that over time. Um, another um, area is, and I can relate this to uh, the two areas in the pandemic. One is related to um, online learning. There's a company called ListenWise, um, which is has a relationship with NPR and has NPR content in a lot of different areas, helping classroom teachers and um, assign 
um, different assignments related to all different subject matters um, that NPR broadcasts on, but it, it's curated for learning. And that is just doing um, phenomenally well. And it really, their sales um, were doing well anyway, but through the pandemic, even more so. Um, and another company is Food Space. And what, what this, this is all about um, AI, machine learning, um, that, and, and they, um, the CEO and his staff created a product that would allow consumers when shopping online to accurately see all the ingredients. Oftentimes before food space, it was there was about a 60% accuracy level there. But um, they have scaled and are working with all different types of food and beverage brands to make sure that when we order online, which I think went from 5% to 40%. And it's really, um, people are used to ordering online. I don't think there's going to be going back. But the one thing they were missing is seeing and holding the product in the physical store, looking at the ingredients. So this solves that problem and makes sure um, a that consumers are looking at accurate product labeling, whether in the store or online. Yeah, that, that's an important uh important piece of the puzzle for food safety, especially yeah. with all of the uh, allergies and just, you know, there's so many different cross contamination. And, you know, if you've got a nut allergy or a gluten allergy or, a, you know, whatever kind of allergy you have, you need to know um, that's where, what's going on with it, where it came from, what's in it. Su super important. I, I, I like the fact that people are trying to really make that a little bit more ubiquitous because a lot of times it's just up to the manufacturer to be like, Oh yeah, this is what it's in. This is what's in it. Or the words are different or, you know, it's made on machines that you also process this, but not really that, you know, it, it's nice to have kind of a consistency. So, so it sounds like it's kind of everything that the pandemic sort of brought out as basically accelerated growth in like delivery, education, telemed, anything that sort of makes us a little more autonomous that we don't have to kind of go to a centralized thing. So do you think that um, this sort of movement's going to continue on? A lot of people are talking about going back to work after COVID. Is there, you know, rumblings that, work is going to be different now because, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, because again, a lot of these services, you're right. Yeah. A lot of these services are great. Like, Oh, well, I don't have to leave my house. I mean, today, I think I, the only thing I did today is I went to jujitsu and I came home and I've been home all day, <laughs> but I work from home because of COVID. Right. So what do you think? How do you think that's all going to play out? Cause I've seen lots of different, um, forecasts on that and opinions. And I don't know, mm -hmm. I, I think you're right that the world has changed. People mm -hmm. are going to, you know, order in more and there's going to be that, that, that whole infrastructure is there, but I also sense there's a pent up, I don't know, seems like we want to kind of get together with each other. I, I yeah. I, I yeah. I think it's kind of going to be hybrid if I, except for life science, I'd say life science and medical device where you need to be in the laboratory. And that's where, if you look around the greater Boston area, that's where you see the investments in laboratory space for life science, um, new drugs, drug development, med device. So that I think is going to stay pretty much the way it was. And a lot of those same have been working through the pandemic because in order to develop product, you need to be in a laboratory. But I think in the tech space, um, there where your job can be done online and product development can be done online um, and, 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 and some sales can be done online. I think that's what is going to happen. And I, and I think what we're going to see is a disappearance of, in some cases, an actual corporate location. That company I spoke about, Food Space, started in the pandemic and does not and has employees all over the place. It's a complete virtual corporation. And I think we're going to be seeing more and more of those in the future. However, to your point, with that 
I think it's important that um, employees get together and have collaboration. So I think it's going to be that mix of sometimes for those who have offices, some type of hybrid work going in when there's meetings. But for those virtual corporations, there's going to be regular get together because I think it's important for team morale and and brainstorming and overall connection for people that you see each other physically um, as well. No, I agree. I agree. I think a lot more creativity and innovation happens when you're face-to-face. I always would tell everyone, well, you can't charge the whiteboard and you got to charge the whiteboard and start scribbling and you know, like get in the, get in the mix because um, it just accelerates all that creativity. But I think you're right. I think it's going to be this sort of, more hybrid. I think a lot of rural communities or communities that aren't in big cities are going to see a huge boom because people are going to want the quality of life. They're going to want not to have the traffic and, you know, those services. I I saw an article about how um, those particular services are sort of also pushing out into the suburbs and why services like culture and things that, you know, would normally would be in the downtown because, you know, I'm in San Francisco and, Downtown's a ghost town. It's it's an absolute ghost town. Not not a lot of people walking around. More so than at the beginning of the pandemic. But boy, I don't know what downtowns are going to do. I mean, there's going to definitely have to be a reckoning on that. Definitely going to change the way we work and live. And a lot of these things that you mentioned, a lot of these technologies are going to help help that occur. And I think it is interesting how, you know, you sort of always in tech, I mean, in, in like software tech saw this whole remote team, um, especially for startups sort of on the, you know, on the edges sort of inkling on how it was going to go, but then extremely accelerated by, by the pandemic. I don't, I just don't know when it's all going to kind of go or if it ever will go back to normal, quote unquote. I don't, I don't know what normal is anymore, right? Yeah, <laughs> but I think, I yeah, that's that's true. I think there is. I don't think I think hybrid is going to be normal. I, mm. I don't, or a lot of full remote positions with the you know with get-togethers or some face-to-face meetings is going to be more normal in the future. Because also think about all the time that people wasted really commuting. And, yeah, you, know, you know, I, yeah, I used to live in the Bay Area and Boston's a little bit better, but uh, that 101 traffic is tough. <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Wow. Yeah. So why do that? Why take time? It just doesn't, it's just not efficient. It doesn't um, make a lot of sense. Um, and I think that also, the benefit is there's unless one lived in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, um, New York City, Boston, the L.A., the tech centers, there wasn't the same opportunity. And mm-hmm. I think this is it's really going to grow the opportunities to those other places. And um, whether it's Des Moines, Iowa or uh, Nebraska, or, you know, that is, and Wyoming, this is, there hasn't been those opportunities. This is going to give opportunities uh, for people to live in those areas, perhaps move to those areas, and for people who are from those areas, get engaged um, and have more employment opportunities and more higher income employment opportunities. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a great, great point. So w- when you look at a company, you know, you're evaluating a company for investment, is part of your evaluation criteria how remote they're going to be or uh, how does that work into the calculus? Because it used to be like, as you know, working in Silicon Valley, I mean, everyone, you wanted everyone to be, you know, the, the well, what's the old joke? The company headquarters is 10 minutes from the CEO's house. Well, not really a joke. That was just like the, that was the, uh, the heuristic. So what do you look for now in those sort of things? Cause, cause it's a different, it it takes a 
a skill set to manage remotely and be efficient. And I'm just curious, like now, how do you look at the lens of that when you evaluate a company? I you know that's really less important. I think it's more where the structure. I think it gets complicated if a company is is a registered company in Europe or Israel in terms mm. of the investment groups that I'm in. There's other investment groups. It doesn't matter at all. Mm. Um, and what we also look for this kind of goes in, in, and you probably see this in Silicon Valley as well. There's a lot of it's really important for the key individuals to be um, it, from the States or from North America. That's in terms, that's our focus. And occasionally we go out to um, Europe also, but there, after that, there's a lot of, for, in terms of dollar efficiency, especially in, in the programming realm, it goes off. There's a lot of offshoring to Argentina, because quite frankly, there isn't enough U.S. workers in that area. There's obviously an opportunity to train more U.S. workers, but right now there isn't in Eastern Europe as well. And India has been doing this for an awful long time. So, but I think, so it really, that has not the remoteness and being a kind of a virtual company has not entered into our calculation whether to invest or not. It's really the whole viability of the, the company altogether. With that said, with a life science diagnostic med device companies, that has to have a physical location. That definitely yeah. does. You just yeah. can't do it without and it. it. Yeah, yeah and it, it'll have to be in either Boston, yeah. South San Francisco, Memphis, <laughs> like or Nashville or wherever, or Memphis, actually, where, where Medtronic is. Yeah, you're right. It, it's just, I, I'm just, because like you mentioned India, and I know back when I was doing semiconductors at Cypress Semiconductor, th- that was like the first time people started outsourcing a lot to India. And we had a big office in India. And I just remember there there was the the calculus of, okay, it's going to be cheaper out there. You know, there's a lot of good engineers in India. They're building up the infrastructure, but you had to have that infrastructure there. I think right. that was the super critical because there, you know, there's just certain things that they just didn't have there. And, and I think even though remote work is going to be more prevalent and people are going to, like you said, oh, you can go to Wyoming, you can go to Ohio or wherever. I don't think... I don't think like Silicon Valley is going to go away. I, I still think that there's some center of gravity, especially because of the, I mean, well, well actually maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. What about for like, you know, usually these tech centers have really good universities and I'm curious if you're seeing, you mentioned, um, I think one of, I think in, in some of the ed tech space, um, do you think that the sort of online education movement is going to, kind of dismantle that or I don't know it just seems like it's you think it would but then there's something about as you mentioned like being in the same room together and learning and like having ideas I just don't know if you can make that virtual (laughs) yeah no that's that's tough to make it virtual I mean that's why there needs to be gatherings but um, regular gatherings. But if there's folks in Silicon Valley and folks in Omaha, Nebraska that are working on things, a lot of times it can be virtual, but then there'll be regular get-togethers. It's not going to be that much different than someone coming in from um, Santa Cruz to San Francisco. So it's just a longer plane ride. Longer so I still commute, think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I do think that still it, it, it's going to be um, viable. But with that said, there is still going to be Silicon Valley is going to be Silicon Valley and San Francisco and uh, the Boston area and LA area as well. The innovation centers are there because it's there's a whole ecosystem of, of universities, um, people coming out of universities, professors, research, companies, capital. There is a whole kind of infrastructure that kinds of um, gets energy and feeds off each other. Yeah. I agree. I, I don't think you can just virtualize that, but yeah, maybe people will start to have these sort of, you know, hubs, like you mentioned, like th- there's going to have to be places where people get together and discuss ideas. 
you know, bond over coffee, take a meeting, like, like feel the energy in the room. I don't know how else to put it because <clears throat> that's what it always feels like to me. It's like, yeah, boy, when we're all together, this goes really, this creative stuff goes really quick, but <laughs> we're on zoom. No, no offense to zoom. Like it just doesn't feel the same. It's not the same. I, I agree with you. And it's hard to the whiteboarding. How do you do that? on zoom? Yeah. Even way. these virtual whiteboards yeah. are just horrible. Yeah, I have to, yeah. I have to smell the pen, like the pen. Yeah. I got to get high a little bit on the pen smell. <laughs> I mean, the dry erase, like I got to feel that. So um, what, what questions do you think the next generation of entrepreneur uh, should ask themselves about getting into being an entrepreneur? I think there's some key questions. I think the first one is, why am I doing this? It just shouldn't be, I want to get rich quick. But if that's what it is, you're, it's going to be frustrating because there's a lot of grit and hills and valleys that, that are going to happen. You've really got to be have a real passion about your your mission and grit to succeed. And it's going to take a, a, a few years. In some cases, it, it's, it's um, bought out quickly, but that's really the exception, not the rule. It's typically going to be anywhere from five uh, to 10 years. Um, the next would be how much capital is really required? And think about what your strategy is and ask people and reach out um, for obtaining this capital. Who do you go to? Um, and if you do need capital, are you open to input? You're kind of not like the lone ranger out there doing your thing, um, doing it, you know, without any input. That's just not, I mean, if you want to do it yourself, that, that's fine, but it's actually not even going to be optimal um, for your business. It's important that you are open for input and as the key word, I guess, is, is, is coachability, but really reaching out um, for all different types of input. You don't need to take all of the advice, but be open to it. Um, and also ask yourself, do I have a product or service with a compelling offering, either in a white space or um, that's over and above the competition with the market of at least a hundred million or more. Um, also, what is your go-to-market strategy? Just that's often, oh, that's going to be easy. Just go to market. It's not. You really <laughs> have to. <laughs> oh, so true. Like half the battle is building the silly thing. The other half the battle is, does anyone, the marketing and selling, does anyone care about it? Oh, that's so. Does anyone care? Does yeah, anyone care? That's, that's right. so, so true. The go-to-market yeah. is such a huge part. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. And point. I guess the last two um, is, are you able to deal with ambiguity? If you're, mm. you know, you've been working for a couple, you know what your job is. You generally have your, what's going to happen this day, this week, this month, years. And you have that stability of a paycheck. Are you able to deal with the ambiguities of funding, but also building a business and all the curveballs that are sent uh, in your way? You've got to be able to deal with that. And lastly, if you are taking investment, what are your exit strategy? Just um, investors want a return. They want to help you out. But they also want to return. Um, and <laughs> what is really, the they're not doing it for altruistic reasons. Wow, come on! No, I know. No. Shocking. We want some money out of this deal. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Know what it is. Think about it. Who just sell it? What are the past exits exactly? That's right. right in your right. space. Right. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. You're quite I really welcome. Enjoyed our conversation. Uh, just wonderful. Keep doing what you're doing. It's just so amazing. And uh, yeah, stay, stay safe. Okay. You too. Thank you. Thanks again, Marjorie, for being on the show. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I'm sure everyone else will enjoy it as well. And wow, what a career you've had and what a continuing awesome career you're going to have, right? So as promised, here are some actionable insights that I learned from Marjorie. Under promise and over deliver. Establishing credibility by meeting or exceeding expectations in initial rounds so the subsequent funding rounds are easier. Now, yes, because we all know, because we've learned this through some of the other interactions with investors, that every round that you go, 
they want to see a double in valuation. And there are certain metrics and measures. I won't go through that. But you need to establish, you know, how you're doing and set some realistic expectations for that. So once you figure that out, then I guess dial it back a little bit, <laughs> at least according to her. Prepare projections for five years and if applicable, budget in time for FDA approval and any kind of regulatory approval. So we all know that if you're going to do anything with the FDA or medical, medical device, drugs, food, or whatever, um, you may need to go through FDA clearance or approval process. So make sure you budget for that. Um, of course, looking at your budgets when you're doing any of these sort of projections, of course, everyone doesn't believe all of them, but the process for you actually doing it makes you think, oh, I'll be able to zig and zag, right? Have an exit strategy that shows that investors will get a return. Um, this is one of those things that a lot of people kind of debate back and forth. Like, oh, you know, what should my exit strategy be? Well, um, I think the best advice I got on this is to really understand the marketplace and who the movers and shakers in the market, either being bought or being going public or whatever. Um, it doesn't need to be hard and fast, but I think a lot of investors want to see if you're going to be growing this company, that there are options to get a return. That's what they want, right? So there's returns in other different ways, but keep that in mind. Have a broad range, right? Be open to advice and input and actually don't be afraid to ask for help. A lot of times, um, a lot of the investor friends I have, the one single trait that they love in an entrepreneur is someone that's coachable. And that just means that, you know, you'll ask for help, you'll take input, you'll take an under advisement. Of course, it's your company, but, you know, being coachable is a really strong uh, trait to have. And a lot of people, especially investors, love to see that because that just means you're open to different views. And if something's going wrong, you'll be like, okay, I got to figure this out. Coach, you know, help me, right? Well, there you have it. The actionable insights that I learned uh, from my interview. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better.